are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody, or at least whatever time it is, wherever it are you're listening to us today. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik, and on Thursday afternoons, at least Thursday afternoons on the West Coast time, I'm here doing a question and answer program where we deal with live questions that come in on the live chat. Here's how it works. Uh, I start with a lead question that I'll get to in just a moment. And then after our lead question, uh, the moderator sends me your questions that have been put into the live chat. We don't get to every question that comes in. Uh, We select several, enough to fill up the hour that we're together here today but I'm very pleased that you could join us. Uh, I do want to say, before we get into the lead question for today, to bless a few of our viewers, we're hosting a giveaway again today. It's the Christmas season, holiday time. It's a wonderful time for giving. So once again today, we are giving away a Enduring Word mug to one lucky listener today, one lucky viewer. Uh, Now, here's what you got to do. First of all, you have to be viewing this live. If you're viewing this later by a recorded video, sorry, you're out of it. This is all during our live chat today. And to enter, you need to type in your location, country, state, city, whatever you prefer, into our live chat. And uh, to do that, you'll have to be a subscriber. So if you haven't done that, subscribe first. And then we're going to announce on the video and in the live chat when entries are closed. That'll be about 10 minutes before the end of today's program. And then after that, the winner will be randomly selected and announced at the very end of today's question and answer time. Now, you gotta be present to the end of the show to see if you've won. If we select your name, if you're the random selection and you're not around, then we're never gonna get your address to be able to send you this wonderful Enduring Word mug. It's a nice mug too. Uh, so we'll send it to you, and uh, we're happy to do that, but you got to subscribe. You got to tell us where you're from, and of course, your screen name will appear, and then you got to hang around to the end of today's Q&A so that we can get your information if you happen to be the one who's randomly selected. If you want to see the official rules, look in the video description below. Now, that's just one of our prizes today. Prize number two is for our Spanish-speaking viewers or those who live in Spanish-speaking countries. And look, I mean predominantly Spanish-speaking countries. You could say that the United States is in some sense a Spanish-speaking country, but we're talking about predominantly Spanish-speaking countries in Latin America and in Europe. We're giving away a free copy of my new Spanish book, Firmes en la Gracia, to each person today who's viewing live from a Spanish-speaking country during today's live Q&A. Again, it has to be in the live Q&A. If you're viewing from a Spanish-speaking country, please contact our moderator with your name, and we'll give you the details on how to receive your free book. Uh, Again, this is the translation of this book in English, Standing in Grace. It's all about what the New Testament says about grace and how it very practically applies to your life. And I'm super pleased that we've translated this book into Spanish now. I'm very grateful for a wonderful team that's done that. 
and I hope it'll be a blessing to Spanish-speaking readers. So if you live in a Spanish-speaking country, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, other Latin American countries, Guatemala, Spain, whatever it is, if you live in a Spanish-speaking country, let our moderator know that you'd one of these books, and he'll give you the details on how to get one for yourself. All right, enough with the giveaway information. Let's get now into our lead question for today. Our lead question for today deals with a question that came in last week, and I didn't know the answer to it. And I told you last week, I don't know the answer. Maybe I'll get to it next week. And so now we're at this question from last week. I do use this as a great opportunity to remind everybody that not for a single minute do I suppose that I can answer every Bible question. Of course not. I don't think anybody can. What really impresses me is when there's questions that I've never heard before or when there's questions that I just don't know the answer to and I love to dig into it. So here's the question that came in last week on the live chat. It was presented to me and I had to say, I have no idea, but I'll look into it. Here's the question. It was from a viewer named Asia. Asia, I don't know if you're on with us again this week, but here's the question you asked last week. Asia asked this question. Ruth married Boaz in order to carry on the family name of Mahlon. Why is Obed reckoned as Boaz's son and not Mahlon's son? Well, as I said before, folks, that was a question I had never heard before. I had never even considered it before. And so it fascinated me. So I did some digging onto the question. Let me give you a little background to this question. It, it's the idea of what's known as Levirate marriage. Levirate marriage is the technical term used. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, explains the issue. I'm not going to read those verses to you, but let me just say it again so that you can look it on your own. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And here's how the issue rolls out. If a man dies having married, but with no children, then his brothers, assuming he has brothers, but his brothers have a responsibility to, and here's the phrase in Deuteronomy chapter 25, to perform the duty of a husband's brother to the widow. That means that they were to, I don't know how to gracefully say this, make the widow pregnant, to inseminate her, if I could use that phrase, to provide children to her, uh, or a child, hopefully a son. Now, the reasons for this were to give the dead man descendants so that his name wouldn't perish. Number two, to, to preserve his inheritance in the family. And then number three, to provide for a widow. In the ancient world, or at least in the ancient Near East, a childless widow was sort of the proverbial extreme of poverty. She had no way to provide for herself. I mean, this wasn't an absolute, this is speaking very generally, of course. And uh, she had no children to help her survive. So the reasons why a brother would do this was number one, to give the dead man descendants, at least in name. Number two, to preserve his inheritance in the family. And number three, to provide for the widow. Now, Deuteronomy 25 also tells us that if a brother did not fulfill this responsibility, it was a disgrace, and he would be disgraced in Israel. Now, we also know from the Bible, especially from Genesis chapter 38, 
that this existed as a custom previous to it existing as a law in the law of Moses. The whole incident between Judah and Tamar in Genesis chapter 38 shows that this existed as a custom before it was a law. Now, this gets to Asia's question with that background. In Ruth chapter 4, Boaz fulfilled this duty on behalf of the deceased Israelite named Mahlon, who left behind the childish widow named Ruth. So Boaz married Ruth, but, and this is Asia's question, in the genealogy that ends the book of Ruth, their child Obed is listed as a descendant of Boaz, not as a descendant of Mahlon. Why? Now, may I say again, I'm going to repeat myself if you don't mind. This is an interesting question that I had never been asked or had never thought of myself. I love it. I love these questions that I never considered before. Now, it is a question that has really interested some people. Matter of fact, in the research I did on this, I found that in 1974, a man named Donald Leggett wrote a doctoral dissertation on this exact issue. He got his PhD on this issue. The title of his dissertation was The Levirate and Goel Institutions in the Old Testament with Special Attention to the Book of Ruth. All right, that's the background. What's the answer? Why is it that Obed, the child of Boaz and Ruth, is accounted or listed as a son of Boaz instead of being a son of Mahlon, which you would think it would be because Boaz is fulfilling the role of the Levirate brother, the Redeemer, the Goel in this. Okay, here's three reasons or explanations. Okay, number one, even though the provision for Levirate marriage in Deuteronomy chapter 25 uses the phrase that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's in verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 25. In practice, the custom was more about preserving the inheritance of the deceased than the name. It was about keeping the land in the family and not allowing tragic circumstances to take the land out of the family. So, Obed inherited the land of Mahlon, that was Ruth's deceased first husband, but he was counted in the genealogical line of Boaz. Okay, that's one explanation or reason. Here's another explanation or reason. Number two, we see the same pattern with the son of Judah and Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. In the genealogical line, Perez and Zerah, that were the twins born from Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar, they are listed as descendants of Judah, not of Ur, that was the deceased husband of Tamar. So, it's interesting, the same practice of, of um, again, it seems that the whole emphasis there was more on the inheritance of the land than it was the inheritance of the name. But here's the best answer. I think those are adequate answers or examples, but here's the best answer. Assuming 
that there was only one son born to Ruth and Boaz, and there's only one son listed. We have no reason to believe there was any more. Assuming there was only one son born to Ruth and Boaz, then Obed would be considered the son of both Mahlon and Boaz, and the inheritance would merge. Now, if they had more than one son, this wouldn't work. But Obed is the only child ever mentioned from Boaz and Ruth. Therefore, he gets counted as being a son of both Mahlon and Boaz. And when it came down to inheritance, he would receive the inheritance both of Mahlon and Boaz. And he could be counted in the genealogy of either. And I think that's exactly how it works. I think that's the best answer to that question, Asia. But thank you for it. Thank you for stumping me on a question that I had never heard before, but was fascinated to dig into. Okay, we're going to get onto the questions coming now from the live chat. But before we do, one more time, I want to remind you about our giveaway today. We're giving away an Enduring Word mug. You want to enter? No problem. Let us know where you're viewing from. This is for our live viewers only. So in our live chat... You have to tell us your location, country, state, city, whatever you prefer. To do that, to give us, uh, you, you can't participate in live chat unless you're a subscriber. And then about 10 minutes before the end of today's program, we're going to close the entries and make a random drawing. I will announce that winner in the last few minutes of a broadcast. So you have to hang on to the very end or you're not going to know whether or not you've won in today's program. So hang on. I hope you can, and uh, it's going to go out to somebody. And one more thing. If you live in a Spanish-speaking country, now I don't mean a country like the United States that also speaks a lot of Spanish, but a Spanish-speaking country like um, Dominican Republic, Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, other places like that, Mexico, Colombia, Spain, then you leave a comment for our moderator in the live chat, telling him you want this book, Fermes en la Gracia. That is the translation of my book, Standing in Grace, which is a development, an application, very practical book about the New Testament teaching about grace. So that's for you today. And if you're part of our TWR 360 audience, You'll have to stop by our YouTube live stream to enter. I hope that you'll do that. And again, if you want to see the official rules, you can see them below. All right, let's get on now with the questions coming in on the live chat. Though I don't look at them directly, the moderator sends them to me. And uh, here we go. First question comes from uh, Kang, who asks this. I have Christian friends who are way too Catholic curious and are starting to make claims about us being wrong about things. I worry that they are researching their way out of the church and into Catholicism. They all they call Catholics brothers in Christ. What can I say to them to help them rethink Catholicism as innocent and brothers and sisters in Christ? All right, well, Ken. Let me say something, and you and I may differ on this, but I believe certainly that there are born-again people within the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think that the Roman Catholic Church necessarily 
helps them be born again. I don't think that the Roman Catholic Church helps them in many aspects of Christian discipleship. There's some aspects of Christian discipleship that the Roman Catholic Church can help them in. I think that people who are in the Roman Catholic Church would be better served in their discipleship by leaving the Roman Catholic Church. But I'm not going to say that there are no born-again people within the Roman Catholic Church. So I wouldn't be so much about calling them brothers or sisters, but how can you help them rethink Catholicism? I would say by really focusing on the main points where we would differ, or at least that I would differ with Roman Catholicism, and that is the authority of the Pope, the authority of the church, specifically when you talk about the authority of the church, you're talking about the authority of the Bishop of Rome. Friends, I'll just give it to you very straightforwardly. I see no biblical reason why the Bishop of Rome should have authority over the Christian life of every believer on earth throughout all ages. I, I just, th there's no biblically compelling reason for that, period. And, and, and uh, then you can get into the difficult doctrines related to the mass, related to the veneration of Mary. And then on top of that, you have the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. There are many areas where the Roman Catholic Church might have, technically speaking, if you understand it in the most generous way possible, uh, they have doctrines that, you know, aren't so offensive. But in practice, things get very difficult in the Roman Catholic Church go to these places all around the world where there's shrines to Mary or Roman Catholic saints or this or that. And you look and you see an unhealthy practice all along the way. So these are some of the things that I would draw their attention to. And uh, they won't be well served in their discipleship of Jesus Christ by staying in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, th that's the best way I could express it to you there, King. And thank you for that question. Right, next question comes from Benjamin, who asks, in the closing chapters of Ezekiel indicate that sacrifices for sin will be restored during the millennium. Does this imply that Jesus didn't die for these sins or that the sacrifices are symbolic in nature? Okay, Benjamin, these last chapters of the book of Ezekiel, basically from Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48, these have been the matter of a lot of uh, controversy and varying opinions among Christians through the centuries. I would suppose that the dominant approach that Christians throughout the centuries have taken towards Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 is just saying that it's all symbolic, that it's all figurative, that a temple is given, it's measured, it's all the rest of it, but it's not real. It'll never be real. It's just symbolic. It has no connection to reality. And therefore, anything that would go on at that temple described in Ezekiel isn't real and has no correction with reality. Um, I would disagree with that, even though I recognize that's been the dominant interpretive approach through the centuries. There are many things that make me believe, and not only myself, there's many people believe this, that what's being described in Ezekiel chapter 40 through verse 48 is a, what many people call a millennial temple, a, a temple that will actually be on the earth during the thousand year uh, glorious reign of Christ over this earth. 
I don't want to imply for a moment that the reign of Christ is limited to a thousand years. <laughs> There's certainly a sense in which Jesus Christ reigns right now. And even after that thousand year period, he will continue to reign. As it says in Handel's Messiah, he shall reign forever and ever. However, God has a special purpose for that thousand year reign of Christ as revealed in scriptures. And I believe that that is when that temple will be. Now, this brings to the question, well, what about the sacrifices that are described at that temple? I would say those sacrifices should be understood in two senses. First of all, uh, Benjamin, I do want to agree with you uh, with all strength here. Absolutely, the work of Jesus Christ was finished at the cross, and there needs to be no more animal sacrifice for sin. None. I talked about that a little bit last week when we dealt with our lead question having to do with the third temple. But the work of Jesus is finished. There can be, there must not be any attempt at a further atonement for sin, especially in something like animal sacrifice. However, however, not all the sacrifices in the Old Testament sacrificial system were related to the atonement of sin. There were sacrifices related to thanksgiving. There were sacrifices related to consecration. There were sacrifices related to uh, honoring God with first fruits, sort of a, a giving kind of thing. So I could see sacrifices happening at a millennial temple that had nothing to do with the atonement of sin, but were fulfilled in these other ways. And that's one aspect. Here's another aspect, that these sacrifices at this millennial temple would be something of a reenactment of what happened in Old Testament times. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a place where they reenact things from history. You know, you go and there's a woman in a dress from 300 years ago, and she's churning butter there, you know, on a porch. Well, why is she doing that? It, it's not because she can't buy butter at the store. She's reenacting something that they used to do hundreds of years ago. Well, I think that there's a purpose for that in the millennial temple of Ezekiel chapter 40 through 4018 as a reenactment, as a memorial. But as you say, Benjamin, quite rightly, not for atonement. That's forever settled at the cross. So I would say sacrifices that were not for atonement and uh, as well sacrifices that were memorialized and remembrances, looking back, reenactments, so to speak. We should remember that the Apostle Paul himself continued as a Christian, as an apostle of God, continued to be involved in temple rituals, certain temple rituals, even uh, after he was an apostle, we find this in Acts, I believe it's Acts chapter 18. Certainly it's in Acts chapter 21. So uh, these were temple rituals that did not have to do with atonement. But in Paul's case, these were temple rituals that had to do with consecration or dedication unto the Lord. Benjamin, I hope that uh, helps you with the answer to that question. Thank you for that. Next question comes from Eastward who asks, can you speak to the Holy Spirit's role and function in the life 
of Old Testament saints. Were they born again without the indwelling spirit? Okay, eastward. Uh, I'll give you my understanding of this. Again, I I always like to recognize when I'm talking about things of which there is a substantial difference of opinion within the Christian world. And I would say my answer is going to be different than those who believe in covenant theology. Uh, on this question, and those who, well, just from other theological systems. So I'll give you my understanding of this, and I'm happy to do it. I would say that everyday believers in Old Testament times, now I'm talking about believers. I'm not just talking about people in Israel. People in Israel could be part of the Old Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, but they weren't saved necessarily by that. No, they were brought in right relationship with God, not just through the provisions of the Sinai Covenant, but they were brought in right relationship with God through faith. Faith in what the sacrificial system pointed towards that would be the perfect and finished work of the Messiah to come. So being a part of that uh, Sinai Covenant community didn't mean they were all saved. No, they had to be added faith to it and faith in what God would provide as evidenced both with connection back to the Abrahamic covenant and to the Mosaic or Sinai or old covenant, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Understanding all that, the everyday believer under the old covenant was not born again, as we think of it on a new covenant perspective. The promises of regeneration, new life, a new heart, the indwelling Holy Spirit, those are promises for the new covenant. Now, there may have been certain individuals who were filled with the Spirit, but the broad filling of the Holy Spirit of every believer, that's something reserved under the new covenant, as announced by Jeremiah in several passages, as announced by Ezekiel, indicated by other Old Testament prophets. This was a feature of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, they could be saved. They could be brought into right relationship with God through faith, especially faith in what the sacrificial system pointed towards, the perfect work of the Messiah, the sacrifice to come. But uh, even in that right relationship with God, they were not born again. They did not have a new heart. They were not filled with the Holy Spirit. There could be exceptions along the way. There are individuals in the Old Testament that it says the Spirit of God was in them, was upon them, but that was not something for all believers. That's why in the book of Joel, it was something remarkable when he said that under the new covenant, he doesn't use the phrase new covenant, but I think it's pointing towards that, that under the new covenant, they would all be filled with the Spirit, that their sons and daughters would prophesy. The young men would prophesy, dream dreams. The old men would dream their dreams and prophesy as well, that it would be an outpouring for all God's people. So I believe that this thing of regeneration, being born again, was something reserved for all believers under the new covenant. There may have been isolated cases where that was the idea uh, for individuals under the old covenant. Okay. Um, Excuse me just here for a moment. Give me just a moment.
Okay, we're back with this. Let me get to the next question here from Margaret, who asks, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5 says this, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. What does it mean to hand a man to the devil? Margaret, I, I would explain simply this, and I think you could look up my commentary, EnduringWord.com, at that very point, but I, I'm happy to give you a summary of my answer right now. It means to take him out of the domain of the Lord, so to speak, and to put him in the domain of the devil, so to speak. Now, again, we understand that the Bible speaks about this in several different ways, but there is a sense in which the church, the, the new covenant community, that is the Lord's domain and that the world outside the church. That is the devil's domain. Now, again, that's a figure that can easily be pushed too far. The Lord has authority over all things. Everything is domain, but we're just speaking in this narrow sense in which the New Testament speaks about it. The church is the Lord's community. The world is the devil's community. To hand a man over to the devil is to remove him from the fellowship of the church and say, you're just out there in the world now. You're not welcome to the blessings, to the fellowship, to the strength of the church. And, and Margaret, in Corinthians, it's done to bring that person to repentance, to make them say, I miss the community of God's people. I miss the fellowship of the saints. I, I, I don't want to just be out in the world any longer. I want to come back and connect with God's family in his community. And really, that would be the motive. And we know from 2 Corinthians that it worked in the case of this thing. They, they exercised church discipline. The man was sorrowful and repented, and then they were hesitant to bring him back. Those Corinthians, they were a crazy bunch. Uh, they were very slow to exercise discipline when they should have. Paul had to tell them to do that. Then when that man genuinely repented, they were very slow to receive him back when they should have done that more quickly as well. So, Margaret, it just simply means to be excluded from the Christian community today. Now, there's a real difficulty in modern Christianity, and that is that if a person is removed from fellowship at a particular church, uh, you know, put out of the church because not just because of weakness in sin, but rebellion in sin. If a person is put out of the Christian community, oftentimes what they'll do is just go to another church in town and pretend like nothing happened and hope that the news doesn't get over to their new church. Well, that's a difficulty that the modern church has to deal with that the New Testament church did not have to deal with. But that's one of our modern challenges. Hope that's helpful for you there, Margaret. Let me go to the next question now from Grandma, who asks, Hello, Pastor David. Hello, Grandma. We please discuss pre-tribulation verse mid or post-tribulation. I'm looking for scripture verses that support pre-tribulation. Thank you. Okay, Grandma. The way I like to explain it is like this. I believe in what's often known as the pre-tribulation rapture, fundamentally based on the idea that the scriptures don't contradict themselves. Therefore, when I look at the Bible and I see 
that there are two different descriptions of world conditions when Jesus returns. Uh, One of them, Jesus said, I'm going to come when they're saying peace and safety and everything's well. I'm going to come when people are eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. It's business as usual. I'm going to come to a business as usual world. That's one word that Jesus said about his coming. And then in other places, it says that Jesus is going to come back to the world when the world is in the midst of tremendous calamity, a calamity that the history has never seen before. That's what Jesus said. A time unlike any other in human history, the agony, the judgment coming upon the world. So my answer is, which is it? Is Jesus coming to a world that's operating business as usual? Or is he coming back to a world that's in utter cataclysm? I say both are true, but there's two aspects of the second coming of Jesus, one coming for the church, meeting them in the air, the other coming with the church uh, in the glorious second coming. And because of things like the differing world conditions, these must be separated by an appreciable period of time. It's same way as well. Jesus said that he's going to return at a time when no man knows the day or the hour. But then there's a, a, a prophecy in Daniel that says that from the going forth of a certain midpoint, of a going forth of a certain abomination desolation, that it'll be a set number of days. I always forget the number, 1,245, something like that, until the end. So which is it? Is it on a day that nobody would know? Or is it on a day that could be known from when the abomination desolation, you could just mark off your calendar that 1,245 or whatever the exact number is, days. Well, I believe both are true and that there's two separate aspects of Jesus's return that are separated by an appreciable time. Those are a few of the several things that are spoken of the return of Jesus in different aspects. And when you look at those things, I believe that the best reconciliation of those uh, passages is to say that there's two distinct aspects of the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, and that those two aspects are separated by an appreciable period of time. I don't believe, obviously, I don't believe that a post-tribulation rapture uh, gives Uh, adequate explanation for that. Neither do I believe that a mid-tribulation rapture gives an adequate explanation of that. But I think that a pre-tribulation rapture best reconciles those um, seemingly different, and some people might say contradictory. I don't think they're contradictory at all, uh, but at least in the minds of some seemingly contradictory passages about the second coming of Jesus. Hope that helps you there, Grandma. All right, next question comes from Eliza, who asks, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, can you please explain what does it mean that I form light and create darkness? Thank you, Pastor David. Okay, here's Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I, this is the Lord speaking, of course, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity I, the Lord, do all these things. Well, Eliza, let me just say simply, this is a verse speaking about the utter 
sovereignty of God. How ultimately everything comes back to the Lord. Now, we understand that the world, the flesh, and the devil do a very destructive work in this world. We understand that. But neither the world, the flesh, and the devil could do any of their work unless the Lord allowed it. In a sense, we're talking about the difference between a primary cause and a secondary cause. What God actively performs versus what God allows. And there's no doubt. If there's darkness, God has allowed it. If there's sin, God has allowed it. And God has a purpose in those things. Now, this gets back to very big questions. You know, why does God allow any kind of evil? Why does God allow any violence, any tragedy, these things from the fall? Why does God allow them? I can give you a very short answer. It's a very incomplete answer, but here's a very short, direct answer. It's because God has something greater for humanity than innocence that redeemed men and women are greater, are higher, are more glorious than innocent men and women. And God has to allow, and in his wisdom, in his plan, he has allowed sin, darkness, violence, rebellion, in order that humanity can be brought forth as redeemed men and women. That's a big picture. So, Eliza, God is sovereign over everything by what he performs and by what he permits in both aspects. Hope that's helpful for you. Okay, look, before I go any further, I do want to say, giving away a mug today. You can get one of these Enduring Word mugs. May I add that you cannot purchase these mugs. We don't sell them, but we give them away. And so if you want one of these mugs, we're going to do a random drawing. And the close for that random drawing is going to happen in just about 12 minutes. At about 10 minutes to the hour, we're going to cut off entries and there's going to be a random selection. And you have to stay on to the end of our program together or you're not going to know that you're the winner and we'll have to pick somebody else. So let us know uh, where you're viewing from, nation, city, county, state, whatever it is. You don't have to give your address, of course. Don't do that. But let us know where you're viewing from. And everybody, every live chat user who lets us know where you're viewing from, we will uh, enter into our random drawing and we're going to send out one of these mugs to somebody. I'll be announcing that winner in just about 10 minutes. One other thing, if you are viewing today live, not by recording, but if you are viewing today live from a Spanish-speaking country, Argentina, Venezuela, Chile, Mexico, Spain, if you're viewing from a Spanish-speaking country, then if you would like a copy of the Spanish translation of my book, Standing in Grace, which is a development of the New Testament idea of grace, Firmes in, en la gracia, 
we'll be happy to send one to you. You just let our moderator know, hey, I live in Colombia and I'd like one of these books. Hey, I live in Mexico. And our moderator will tell you how to get Firmas en la Gracia. We'll send it to you free because we want people to know about this book. We're very pleased that our translation team has translated my book, Standing into Grace, into Spanish. And they've also translated it into German. That's also available and available on our website. All right. Let me get on to the next question here from Juan, who asks, uh, Pastor David, I started my Bible study from the Old Testament as a new believer. However, many tell me to start with the New Testament. I'm confused since the Old Testament gives the foundation for the New Testament. Can you explain? Juan, this is just kind of a basic thing that is told to new believers. Start with the New Testament. But Juan, you don't have to. If you're reading the Old Testament, and it's making sense to you, and you're understanding it, that's just fine. Read the Old Testament, then get to the New Testament when you do. And by the way, you may uh, find my commentary online helpful in your Bible reading, enduringword.com. So, Juan, I just want to tell you that even though it is the custom of many people to tell new believers or young believers, start with the New Testament, which is a wonderful thing to do, but there should be no law or pressure on a believer. If you want to start with the Old Testament, go right ahead. But when you run up against things that you don't understand, don't despair. Don't think, wow, this Bible is too difficult to understand. Look for some good Bible resources. Maybe what I have at EnduringWord.com might be helpful for you, but there's lots of other good Bible resources out there to help you. Juan, I'm just happy to hear that you're a new believer, relatively speaking. Welcome to the family of God and keep reading your Bible. God will pour into your life and work by the power of his spirit as you continue in his word. Okay, next question comes from Lillian, who asks, Pastor Guzik, in your teaching five years ago about 1 Peter 1, you talk about how we need more holiness and love as Christians. How does that look like to you? What are some practical ways to display more love and holiness as Christians? Well, Lillian, love expresses itself in many ways. Kindness, thoughtfulness, maybe truthfulness in dealing with other people. Um, it's centered in, maybe I should rephrase that. It's rooted in being others-centered. That's really what love is in so many ways. Putting the needs of others above your own needs. Not that you never give attention to your own needs, but you don't only give attention to your own needs. So that's the best way I could just think of love. It's loving people, uh, serving them, blessing them, honoring them, building them up in the name of Jesus, an encouraging word, a helpful presence, uh, helping with a job that practically needs to be done, finding way to serve people, praying for people, blessing them in the name of the Lord, a thoughtful note, um, uh, helping somebody who's struggling with a particular sin. All of those things can be expressions of the kind of love that we're to have for one another in the family of God. Now, that's about love. What about holiness? Holiness, Lillian, has at its root the idea of separation. Separating from sinful things. The world, the flesh, the devil. But not only separation from those things, but also separation unto God. 
I'm separated unto the Lord. And so what that means is to, in increasingly meaningful ways, to forsake the things of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to give ourselves to the things of the Lord, to have his goodness, his word, his, uh, his law, so to speak, written over everything that we are and do. That's just a couple of things that come to mind most immediately, Lillian, over that idea of growing in love and holiness. Now, this is something that we have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to do. It's impossible for us to grow in love and holiness without that work of the Spirit in our heart. So it's good for us to continually be um, surrendering ourselves and asking ourselves for just a, a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. I remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you wanted to get technical with the grammar of the ancient Greek, and again, not that I know this myself, but I know how to read the guys who do know Greek. Uh, it, it could be said, uh, be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit, that this should be a continuing experience in the Christian life, uh, something for us to live in and walk in all the time. Okay, uh, are we continuing on here? Yes, we are. In just a few minutes, what time is it now? In just about five minutes, we're going to wrap up our entries for the free mug. Let us know. If you want one of these, let us know where you're viewing from. Your name will go into our random drawing. And if you're in a Spanish-speaking country and want one of these books, uh, Firmes en la Gracia, Standing in Grace, translated into Spanish. If you're in a Spanish-speaking country, let us know. And... Uh, our moderator will tell you information on how to get that. Okay, next up from Eve, who asks, uh, Pastor, what do I have to do to have intimacy with God? Thanks and more grace. Eve, when we talk about intimacy, we're really just talking about closeness. And how can a person draw close to God? How can they do that? Well, Eve, I, I would just say simply this. Give attention to the Lord. Give him your time. Give him your attention. Give him your focus. Think about him. Talk about him to others. Eve, without sounding strange about this, think of what people do when they're in love with each other. When people are in love with each other, they like to spend time together. They like to do things together. Um, when you love somebody, you want to hear what they have to say. And so if you love God and want to draw closer to him, give attention to what the Lord has to say to you in his word. So really do the things that people do uh, in human relationships to draw close to one another and to express love to one another. Uh, pay attention. You know, what, what would you think of two people having a conversation and they're not even looking or paying any attention to each other? They're just staring at their phones. What well, you would say, you know, you could do better than that. If you put your phone down and just focused on that other person. So don't just um, go to church, if I could use that phrase. R really pay attention. Uh, when we love somebody, we speak well of them. Speak well of the Lord. When we love somebody, we're excited to tell other people about them. Oh, let me introduce you to my new friend. And it's that way with our relationship with God. 
so spend time with the Lord. Listen to his voice. Um, obey what he has to tell you. Don't let disobedience get in the way of your uh, closeness with the Lord. These are some of the very simple and straightforward ways that you and other people can draw closer to the Lord. Thank you for that question there, Eve. Next question comes from Amy, who asks, Pastor David, I have a question about a term that has always kind of confused me. Why is the church referred to as the Bride of Christ? Hope you can help me with an answer on this. Love the Q&As. Amy, what a great question. I love questions like yours. Just simple, direct. Hey, why, why do we do this? Why is this reference? Okay, because in the scriptures, especially in the book of Revelation, the church of God is presented as a bride of Jesus Christ. It's an image that's trying to show how much he loves uh, the church, how cherished the church is, uh, that he has purchased a church. Remember, in the ancient world, and sometimes in the present world too, a dowry meant a bride was purchased by the husband. And that's what the Lord has done for us, Jesus Christ. So it speaks of the affectionate love, the concern, the care, the, the purchase price, all of those things together have the idea of the people of God, the church being the bride of Christ. That's an image that's especially used in the book of Revelation. I'm doing a quick scan of my mind. I don't know. I can't think immediately. Uh, well, okay. In Ephesians chapter 5, the image is used of the church related to Jesus as a husband is related to a wife. So you can see that bride imagery there as well. So this is just a biblical picture or symbol used to communicate how precious the church is to Jesus, how wonderful it is that he purchased the church and how he wants to share the rest of his life to inherit all things. That's the destiny of the church, of God's people in this age. Thank you for such a great question, Amy. Hey, last chance. In just a moment, we're going to close our entries for this. So tell us where you're from if you want an entry in our random drawing for this. I'll answer one more question, then we're going to close the entries and get on to other things. Brandon asks, Hi, Pastor Dave. I'm loving your study through Genesis right now. Could you speak to biblical church discipline? How do you reconcile church discipline with judge not lest you be judged? Thank you, brother. Well, Brandon, there's no problem reconciling that because judge not lest you be judged doesn't mean that we're not to make moral judgments among other people. We're just not to do them, if I could use the phrase, in a judgmental manner. Brandon, I'd really recommend that you go to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, isn't it, where that is? where I discuss that whole issue, judge not lest you be judged. Matter of fact, I think I have a specific sermon on our YouTube channel where I deal with that verse about judge not, what it means and what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean don't make moral judgments. Jesus made moral judgments. Paul made moral judgments. Peter made moral judgments. Paul asked the church to make moral judgments. No, no, no. We do that, but we don't do it in a judgmental manner. And especially we don't do it in a way that we would not like to be judged. We do it according to a consistent standard. Hope that's helpful for you, Brandon. Okay, I'm going to announce it right now. Entries are closed. So let it be said, so let it be done. Moderator, let them know that entries are closed. Uh, staff, get at it and make that uh, 
random choice. And in just a few moments, when I get word back from our staff who our random winner is, we'll announce who wins the Enduring Word mug for the day. Okay? Now, before we get on the lightning round, let me just make sure that my nose isn't going to bother me here. Here we go now. Lightning round. I got a comment from somebody today. They said, you know, you don't deal with the lightning round very fast. You go into a little too much depth with each question. Okay, I'm going to try to deal with the lightning round more quickly today. Okay? Give shorter answers to each question. Ready? Junebug, what are your thoughts on a very devoted yet single Christian woman adopting a child from foster care system? Junebug, I'll be honest with you. It's not the best. It's best for a child to grow up with a mom and a dad absolutely true. That's best. E- even single moms day would admit that. It, it, it's better if the child has a dad. So that's best. But it might be good to do because it's better than the situation that the child may be in in the foster system. So I would not give an absolute no to it, but I would recognize that it's not the best. Best is for children to be raised in a home where they have a mother and a father that love one another. Next question from Lillian. I went to a Protestant missionary school in Ethiopia, an evangelical church on Sundays, and was baptized Orthodox as I was vitally connected to a local church. If they're not, it's not ideal. It's good. It's better. It's best if Christians are vitally connected to a local church. But the denominational name on that church isn't so important as whether or not that church loves Jesus, teaches the Bible, and advances the kingdom of God. You're right, Lillian. People can make far too much about denominational identifications. When you get to heaven, nobody's going to want to see what denomination you're from. And I would include my own non-denominational denomination, Calvary Chapel, in that. You're not going to show some kind of Calvary Chapel membership card if there ever was such a thing. No, that's not going to give you any extra points in heaven. We all stand at equal ground before the cross. Okay, next is from NGL. God bless you, Pastor David. I hear you speak so much about Spurgeon. I wonder if you know Watchman Nee and read his books. And yeah, I certainly do know about Watchman Nee. I have appreciated some of his books. Sit, Walk, Stand is, I think, a great book. Uh, So is his book on, I believe it's uh, The Song of Solomon. I know I read that, as well as some of his other books. I haven't read all of his books, but I would just say I I do appreciate much from Watchman Nee, uh, but I've read a lot more Spurgeon than Watchman Nee. Thank you for that. Uh, George asks, I'm reading the book of Samuel and notice that Eli's son were the sons of Belial. Who is Belial? Uh, that means sons of wickedness. In Hebrew terminology, to call somebody the son of something means that they're marked by that. So calling them sons of Belial doesn't mean that they were literally sons of a person named Belial. It's as if they're saying, you're a son of wickedness. That's really just simply what it meant there in that context, George son of, they're associated with that evil and wickedness that Belial represented. Didn't mean that they were literally sons of Belial. Thank you for that question there, George. Jerry asks um, this question. uh, Pastor Guzik, any guesses why Daniel was not mentioned in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the incident with the fiery furnace? Well, all, all we can do is give guesses, Jerry, and I'm happy to give guesses. Here's guess number one, that, uh, 
Daniel was away on business. He was a government official. Sometimes government officials have to travel in their work. Daniel was away. It's inconceivable that Daniel would have been among those who bowed down to the image. And um, I think that there is a beautiful picture and analogy there uh, related to the catching away of the church and not being there in the midst of the tribulation. But that's another thing altogether. That's speculative. I would just say the best idea, the simplest idea is that Daniel was away on um, official business. Next question comes from Amy. Hi again, Pastor David. I've heard people speak of fasting, but I've never done this and do not know a lot about it. Can you explain the purpose and how I can go about starting this myself? Amy, I recommend to you a book written by my father-in-law, Nils Bergstrom, Dedication Through Fasting and Prayer. You can get it on Amazon. Look this book up, purchase it. It'll give you a great starter to the practice of fasting. My dear father-in-law Nils is a man who's practiced fasting through so much of his Christian life, and it's been of great blessing and benefit to him. And so he, in this book, just sought to write down some of what he's learned. I don't know, Nils and Gunnel, if you're watching right now, love you. God bless you. Uh, but anyway, I recommend that book, but the thing to do is to just get some basic biblical background on the practice and start small. If you're not used to the practice of fasting, start small, but definitely start and use that practice to draw yourself closer to the Lord and express your dedication and gratitude to him. And then uh, let's see here. Uh, Texas Lioness asks, how do you keep fasting a secret if you're married or live with other people? It becomes obvious if you're not eating. Texas, um, I don't think the idea is that you have to keep fasting completely secret, but you just have to not promote it. Just don't make a big deal about it. Okay, I'm not eating today. That's it. No big deal. Not, oh, I'm not eating today. Hey, everybody, I'm not eating today. No, avoid all of that. Just simple, plain, no big deal. I'm not going to be with you at the meal today, or I'll sit at the table and just not eat. Uh, you could do that as well. So it's really more an idea of just not promoting it or making a big deal out of it more than it is feeling a need to keep it absolutely secret. You're not supposed to advertise it. And then here, uh, oh, that was the last question here on our lightning round. We have announced our winner in the live chat, new disciple from De, Le De Leon, Texas, you are the winner of an Enduring Word mug. So, hey, contact us. Our moderator will tell you how so that you can give us your postal address. And we're happy to send you, new disciple from DeLeon, Texas, one of these Enduring Word mugs. Hey, if you didn't win, sorry about that. But I think we're going to do this. Can I say this? Well, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I think we're doing this all the Thursdays here in December because it's Christmas like to give things away. So I hope that's okay. Staff, if I'm wrong, hey, if I'm wrong, you're going to kind out next week that we're not giving away a mug, but I think we're doing it this because it's Christmas. It's the time of giving, and we just want to give something to you, our wonderful viewers. Hey, uh, if you've been viewing from a Spanish-speaking country and you've participated, please contact us at the email address that the moderator puts in the live chat. And add to the subject line the title of the book, Fermes and La Gracia, to your email. And then we'll know that you're in a Spanish-speaking country, 
Mexico, Colombia, Nicaragua, Spain, and we will send you a copy of Standing in Grace, translated into Spanish. Let us know at the email address that the moderator puts in the live chat. What a program we have had today. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, staff, Annie, Andrea, moderator. Thank you so much for all your great work. And I hope you can join us next week as I think we're going to do another giveaway, but I'll be here to answer more of your questions. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, very pleased that you could be with us today. Thank you and God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.